when I was in my 20s, all of these people were like, we're going to have a found family. We're all going to live together. We're going to be polyamorous, remake relationships, and we're going to break through like the sort of bourgeois mold. And even at the time, I was like, I, I just feel like I do want a house and a wife, you yeah. know, maybe not necessarily a child. You know, I'm, I'm Indian. And so I, I've experienced like clo- very close lit community. And I think part of the book is about contrasting what a really close knit community looks like and what a scene looks like. Welcome to Eminent Americans, a podcast about the contemporary American intellectual scene. If you're listening via a non-Substack platform, I encourage you to subscribe to the Substack so that you can get my text-based posts as well. My guest on the podcast today is Naomi Kanakia. Naomi's the author of three extant books as well as roughly 18 forthcoming books in seven different genres. Um, so Naomi, welcome to the podcast. I'll give a more proper introduction. It's not 18, it's just three or four forthcoming books. Uh, but welcome to the podcast. Um, we're going to talk about two big things today. One is Naomi herself, her writing, and what I would characterize as her unusually meta or candid approach to thinking and writing about the work of being a writer, thinking specifically about kind of the subterranean motives and status moves that lie just underneath the wholesome public narratives that writers provide to the world about why and what they're doing. Uh, Before we get to that, though, we're going to spend some time on Brandon Taylor, who is the figure that Naomi came up with when I asked her who on the scene uh, she was interested in discussing on the podcast. So Taylor, just for a brief background, is a 34-year-old Black gay writer, primarily of fiction. He's now based in New York, but was born and raised in a small town outside of Montgomery, Alabama, in a conservative Christian family. He spent a number of years in a graduate biochemistry program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison before leaving without finishing his PhD to focus on fiction. And then he then went on to earn his MFA in the famed Iowa Writers Workshop and has since published three works of fiction, the 2020 novel Real Life, which was shortlisted for a Booker Prize, the 2021 collection Filthy Animals, and most recently this year's Late Americans, which is maybe a collection of stories masquerading as a novel. He's written book reviews and review essays for fancy places like the New York Times and the New Yorker, and he has a very popular Substack sweater weather to which Naomi and I are both subscribers. So Naomi, you can nuance this since you're a bit more of a Brandon Taylor watcher than I am, but if I had to briefly characterize why I think we find Taylor interesting for the purposes of this podcast, it's less because of his fiction, uh, which is solid, but maybe not super distinctive than because of the way he deals as a queer writer of color with a few different conflicting tendencies or imperatives in his character. So he loves the books he loves, irrespective of the race or era of their author. He has a somewhat agonized relationship to woke politics, seems to feel allergic to it in some of the particulars, but can't shake a kind of global allegiance to it. He has a strong desire to connect with his readers and maybe also has a somewhat thin skin when it comes to criticism. So I want to ask you if that sounds right to you, Naomi, but let me quickly introduce you before we get to that. Naomi is the author of three books, the YA novels enter title here, and we are totally normal, one or both of which I believe was a bestseller, as well as the nonfiction semi self-help tract, The Cynical Guide to Publishing. She also has three forthcoming books, the YA novel Just Happy to Be Here, the adult novel The Default World, and the non-fictional What's So Great About the Great Books, which I believe you just finished a draft of, if your substack is accurate to life. And she has a great substack as well, Woman of Letters, which you should su- subscribe to. I don't usually list my guests' academic cred- credentials, but I think they will prove relevant here. So Naomi went to Stanford for undergrad and then got her MFA at Johns Hopkins. So Naomi, welcome. And um, I guess tell me if my capsule summary of Brandon Taylor was more or less on target and also expand on why you chose him to talk about. So I know uh, Brandon slightly, not anymore, but we were both at the Lambda Literary uh, Writers Conference for LGBTQ plus writers in 2015. Uh, I've never gone to a conference like that since. I found it a very alienating experience because there was just like super radical left-wing politics. We were there while Obergefell was decided making gay marriage legal. Yeah. (laughs) 
And there was kind of mourning. It was like, oh, now we're so assimilationist. Like we've assimilated. It's like, uh, yeah, but I mean, I want to have like custody of my kid, right? Like, <laughs> but Brandon definitely stood out as someone who just had really good taste. You know, people would ask him what his favorite book was. And he would say Mavis Gallant, who uh -huh. is a Canadian writer of these very mannered short stories. And, you know, we had a lot of the same interests. We both like Proust and Victorian literature. And I just thought he had really good taste. Since then, he has, has exploded and is probably, you know, in the very small world of literary fiction is one of the more successful literary writers out there. I mean, I've definitely struggled with plenty of envy. I think his first book that was the only one I've read is quite good. And like on a character story level, has plenty of interesting moves. Uh, as I've gotten more into um, a writing career, like I've just come to value more writers who have a public profile who seem to, you know, stand up for art and literature and have good taste. And so I've also recently, there's been a lot of chatter about, you know, kind of wokeness in literary fiction and these bland mainstream center left politics in fiction. I think there's a lot of talk about how books get overpraised if they have certain politics. And it got me thinking, who is a woke literary critic? Who out there can we point to and be like, this person has terrible taste. They are just going to make the most reliable move. And I, I'm not sure there's anyone we can really point to on that score. A lot of the like well-known literary critics, they seem to have pretty good taste. But but at the same time, like it's very clear that a lot of these books that that blow up, there's really not a lot there. The one I mentioned, because, you know, he's so successful, it's not like I can really hurt him in any way, is Ocean Vong's On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, mm -hmm. which I just find to just not be a very good book. Like, it's not very well written and just not a very good story. So I was like, what, where does like kind of this, these reputations at least come from or what's going on in the, in the critical sphere? And I thought Brandon would be a good uh, character in that ecosystem. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot in there. So you said so you were at this conference, this Lambda conference. This was 2015. Your first book came out in 2016. Is that right? Yeah. So you had presumably had a kind of contract. You knew it was coming out. And I think Taylor's... He was still a, he was still a graduate student uh, at Wisconsin. So he hadn't yet gone to for his... Oh, um, oh interesting. For biochemistry. He was, he, was, he was debating whether to do go to med school, maybe. He knew that kind of the biochemistry career wasn't going to wasn't going to be the thing. Uh, which was smart, um, but uh, yeah. then he, um, was, you know, was thinking about about which way to leap. I thought he was a really smart, interesting person. Like I would not have predicted that he would be the super success. But I mean, you know, I think I once heard someone say about Samuel Beckett. Of course, geniuses have friends, but nobody thinks their friend is a genius. If I had been like, who at this conference is going to break out and be a global success, I would have said me. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, you know, it's interesting. It sounds like you would have also maybe singled him out. But I think one of the things that you brought up a lot in your writing, which resonates with me, is like there's often not much of a correlation between our own very refined sense of who's good and sort of literary success. So I, I don't tend to think there's a lot of totally undiscovered geniuses. I think most of the people who are very good are out there in some fashion, but that doesn't mean they're huge. I don't want to project this onto you. I should own my own reaction. I read about 100 pages of what to call it, getting a real life, right? His novel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I have a hard time holding on to it because it's such a probably deliberately sort of generic name for a title. I wasn't blown away. I mean, he's obviously somebody who can write sentences, but I didn't, it wasn't one of those ones that jumped out to me. Like this is somebody who has a sort of profoundly interesting voice. It, 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 it jumped out to me as somebody who's very good. He should be out there publishing books, but, but maybe there was a disparity between the quality of the work and the, the, quantity of the acclaim. I was a little bit projecting that opinion onto you as well. Um, but but maybe that's not fair. No, I don't really I don't really think in those terms. That might have been like my reaction at one point. Um yeah. but I don't really think in those terms anymore because normally when I read the book of somebody like Brandon, I'm like, this is terrible. This should not <laughs> nobody should read this. This should not be published. This is like the opposite of what fiction should do. So with him I'm like, yeah, this is a good book. Right. The threshold, your your threshold has gotten so low that it, it cleared that bar by a sufficient amount of space that you were happy. So, so I guess the other thing that I sort of, 
inferred in terms of your opinion of him and why he was interesting was that he was somebody who was kind of particularly, I think, in his Substack, he was somebody who was kind of wrestling, I think, with some of the same things that I think on, in one respect we're all wrestling with, but maybe you are as a queer writer of color as well, which is how to orient towards all of these, the politics of this. You know, however you feel about wokeness or anti-wokeness, it seems fair to say that we're in a particularly sort of politicized moment. I mean, in all respects, but certainly in the discussion of, of culture. And that I guess I detected from you a sense that he was both interesting in the way he dealt with that, but maybe not totally above board. I mean, not in a cynical way, that he was kind of, you could detect in some of the things he he was writing an effort to sort of have it both ways, to sort of hold on to his particular affection, both for specific writers who wouldn't pass some kind of simplistic wokeness test, but also just a sort of a basic fundamentally aesthetic orientation, aesthetic non-political orientation towards literature. And he wasn't, that he wasn't quite willing to own some of those or sharpen those distinctions. He was trying to evade them. Is that fair? I think that's, that you hit the nail on the head. I have a, I have a story that illustrates this. I have a friend who is very uh, cynical and anti-woke because her novel can sell, um, which is a very good novel. And she sent me a tweet of Brandon's where he was like, uh, decrying like race grifters. And, I, and he was like, this guy, Brandon, like he knows he's willing to say the truth. I said to my friend, like, yeah, definitely. But on the other hand, Laura Miller, you know, wrote a review of his book and a few started up about this review being racist. Yeah. And he went on Twitter and kind of fanned the flames on that, you know, and was like, I've gotten this racially tinged critique many times in my life that my work should be basically, she said, if she wished his work was funnier, yeah. um, more like his Twitter and his, his Substack and less kind of very mannered the way it is. And he's yeah. like, like people just like telling me to, kind of stay in my lane and so like a little bit of race, exactly a little bit of race scripting <laughs> yeah let's i mean let's talk about that laura miller thing it's funny i was just listening to a podcast i went searching for podcasts that he was on and there was one that just came out i think and the laura miller review came up this was like a thing so laura miller writes this review that is basically it's what you said it's basically saying i love Bland i love brandon taylor's twitter and Substack. he has such a kind of charming irreverent fun personal voice, super distinctive. Why did he write this work of sort of boring MFA fiction? I think that was basically the critique, yeah. um, which, which seemed basically right to me. I mean, it seemed both right in terms of the fiction of his I've read relative to his Twitter and his Substack, but I guess it also seemed legitimate to me as yeah, a, as, a as smart a critique of his work. I mean, it right. is if somebody has two modes, two right. highly distinct successful modes, it's like very legitimate, like, you know, why don't they write in this other mode instead of this one? And yeah, I, I don't think she was saying literally write like your Twitter or your Substack. I think she was saying there's a spirit, there's a vibe to the yeah. to those that's missing, that I love, that's missing in this rather drab yeah. fiction you, you I, wrote. I just saw a, a, a review of um, Evelyn Waugh's work that was like, why does everybody like Brideshead Revisited? It doesn't have any of the humor and ver of, of Evelyn Waugh's other work, you know, like it's it's a legitimate critique. And he was on this podcast. He did not repeat the sort of stuff he said on Twitter about it being a racist critique. I'm a little unclear why it was obvious to him that it was racist. Like, I'm not even sure I see the logic to that. But he and the host were just kind of yucking it up about what a dumb approach it was. Either do you know or if you had to sort of reverse engineer, what was the argument for why it was a kind of racist approach to his book? God, I don't have the uh, arguments in front of me precisely. Yeah. But I mean, I definitely know what the argument would be, um, which is you first have to posit like the late Americans as being a more serious work of fiction, reaching for some kind of like universalism and situate that as being higher than yeah. Twitter and Substack. And then it kind of becomes a rap on the knuckles. Basically, why are you doing something that is too serious for you? Like you should just stay in your lane and write funny things. It's kind of yeah. like how women writers always feel like, oh, I have to write a slim domestic novel or novel about love or something. And I'm not allowed to write, you know, something big, ambitious and serious. Right, okay, um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
it's funny because when I was thinking about it, well, two things. One, I'm still bearing a grudge against Laura Miller from like 15 years ago when she sent a mean rejection letter to a, an essay that I submitted to Salon. So it's odd to be in the position of, of defending Laura Miller. I guess the other thing that occurred to me was I wondered if one of the reasons she approached her review in the way she did was ironically facing the, the difficult challenge of writing a negative review of a queer black writer as, as like a straight cis woman that she was afraid of getting it wrong and talking about how much she loved his Twitter and Substack was a, an effort to sort of inoculate herself against that. I mean, I can't see in her mind. I just wondered, I mean, we all know that, that as, as writers, we're doing all these sorts of weird contortions and strategies. Like I have a friend who wrote an essay about, um, well, it's about (laughs) like basically various race fakers of various sorts and how people will pretend to be people of color and their books will come out and they'll be critically acclaimed and then they'll be unmasked and like suddenly the critical opinion will turn. Right. And his point of view, because, you know, we we are people of color, like this has to be our point of view, was like they were writing fundamentally mendacious, false books and that the original critical acclaim had been false, Uh that they had been falsely praised for bad things in the book. And once their dishonesty was exposed, then real good critical opinion came. I'm like, but couldn't it just as easily be the opposite? The book didn't change, you know? And American Dirt is a classic example. People nowadays are like, oh yeah, this is just Oprah schlock, you know? But it got pretty good reviews. Like it had pretty good blurbs. It was supposed to be like a solid, you know, and not quite literary, but upmarket commercial book. And then the moment the kind of critical opinion started to turn, suddenly people were dissecting it on a line by line level, being like, this is poorly written garbage. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of want to shift the focus to you a little bit. So so what's your brief kind of origin story? You're you're how old? You mid thirties? I'm trying to Yeah, I'm how old am I? Thirty seven. Thirty seven. Okay. So so yeah, what's your what's your origin story? Yeah, I mean, I started out um, as a, you know, middle school, high schooler. I only wrote science fiction and fantasy. Yeah. Um, and I always wanted to be a sci-fi fantasy writer. Um, that's what I was writing, like, through college. I went to the Clarion Workshop, which is the workshop that science fiction and fantasy writers go to. Um, and I published in all the high-profile science fiction fantasy journals, FNSF, Asimov's, Analog, uh, all of them. Yeah. And then um, I basically, like, just really wanted legitimacy. And that was also a time when science fiction fantasy writers, a few of them were making the move into literary respectability. Uh, the most famous is uh, Kelly Link, who oh, yeah. also was a, is a Clarion grad, or Samuel Delaney had done it a little bit earlier. Jonathan Lethem, right? Wasn't he? A kind yeah, of- yeah, Jonathan Lethem. I loved yeah. his work. Uh, and then I was like, that's gonna be me. I'm gonna do that. So I, I, I applied to MFA programs, uh, I got rejected from all my MFA programs the first time. I also like at some point in there, I was like, this is absurd. I can't want to be a great writer without reading more broadly. Like I was still just reading science fiction fantasy. So I bought one of these books, the new lifetime reading plan that has the list of books to read before you die. And I started reading the books. Yeah. And then I went to the MFA in 2012 yeah. uh, at Johns Hopkins. Um, I applied with science fiction stories. But that was perfectly fine. Science fiction writers still come to me and are like, how do I get into an MFA program? And I'm like, when they read your story, they have to not be able to see your lineage, right? If they read the story and are like, this person loves Borges and Italo Calvino and George Saunders, then you can get in. If they're like, this person loves, you know, John Barley and Michael Swanwick and Bruce Sterling, you're not going to get into an MFA program. Yeah. So I had obscured my lineage and I had a fine time in the MFA program, but I, I kind of lost interest in science fiction and fantasy. I think there's maybe like a mimetic d- desire aspect. Like I was suddenly in the literary world and just just didn't value all these other things as much. I, I kind of lost faith in heroism and writing stories about heroes and fighting. I always imagine Luke Skywalker at some point, he's running back to the Millennium Falcon um, and laser beams are shooting at him. And I'm like, if one of those laser beams hit him, this story would be over right now. <laughs> right, it's right. just a story about a guy who happens to not get hit by lasers. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I have a few things to say. One is, I was a big science fiction fantasy reader as a kid. Actually, my first would-be book, my first ever book proposal was a, was a proposal about the culture of science fiction and fantasy fans about fandom. Oh. Fortunately, that never amounted to anything. Um, but that, and then the other thing is, I actually wrote a piece. I wrote a profile of Kelly Link 
lived, oh, nice. still lives in or outside of Northampton, Massachusetts. And I was working at a all weekly in Western Mass. And so I went and wrote a profile of her and her husband, Gavin something and their press and her writing. So uh, I have lots of connections to your story. So one of the things I said a little bit about this in the intro that you have a kind of unusually meta approach to the world of writing. And, and I'm curious how far back that goes. I read some of your, I think it was your first published novel, the enter title here, that was the first one, right? And it has yeah. this incredibly sort of compelling opening about its protagonist, who's a, what, is she a senior in high school? Yeah. Doing your senior in high school, Indian American girl, super striver. And it's all about her sort of deconstruction of the college admissions process, what precisely they're looking for. She knows she's a grind. She knows that college admissions officers don't want grinds. So to become a fiction writer in which she learns the error of her ways as a grind in order to be the type of sensitive soul with straight A's and high SAT scores who would get into Stanford. Is that a, yeah. is that a, is that a, yeah. she has to be one of the Asians that Harvard gives a high personality score. She has to. to be one of the right kinds of Asians. So I don't mean literally was this you, um, but I, what I imagine is you being somebody from relatively early on who is kind of looking at the, the kind of social cultural context you're in and observing it from the outside, doing a kind of amateur sociology of the world. Is, is that right? Is that something that came to you later? Yeah. I would say that's right. I, I like find the literary world to be very fascinating, like the the high literary world. Yeah. Because, you know, I came into the MFA program already having this background, already being published, like already having written novels and kind of knowing my way forward to publication, which a lot of people in literary world don't know. I used to be ashamed of it. Why am I so interested in like this very tiny world that I belong in that doesn't have any broader relevance? But I'm like, I just find it really interesting, fascinating. Yeah. I was I was reading your piece yesterday on the myth of the classically educated elite. And one of the kind of sociological things you observe is that writers come from the elite, but it's like the lower elite, right? I'm not sure what the Marxist term would it would be. Yeah. It, it's probably a good description of you, right? Because on the one hand, you went to Stanford, you went to Johns Hopkins, you published with major presses, you have all of these sort of markers of kind of legitimacy and elite education. On the other hand, I think your parents were immigrants, right? Um, yeah. And I don't know, like, I wonder, did you grow up in kind of Silicon Valley-ish? Am I making that I up? I grew up in Washington, D.C. Oh, My okay. mom is a professor at the University of Maryland College Park. Oh, so you're the child of a professor. So on yeah. the one and hand... that is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Okay. So on the one hand, you are in all respects elite. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm assuming you didn't feel that way. And I would actually say there's a kind of thread in your writing as though you're writing as an outsider who has kind of learned the byways. Do you feel that way? I'm curious. You know what's great about the world now is somebody who's not successful always has to situate themselves as like the opposite of successful people somehow. Yeah. But what's great is like nowadays successful people position themselves as outsiders. Yeah. So I don't have to, I don't have to do that. It can just be like, yeah, you know, I'm just like unsuccessful striver. Like, I mean, it's clear to like anyone who is like an insider that I'm not you know, fully inside. On the other hand, I think I just identify really with all these just middle-class people I know, like yeah. regular middle-class people who are like, yeah, if I do really, really good work, then, you know, maybe I can sell a book. You know, if I go to grad school and excel in every, you know, this, that, and the next way, then like I can, I can get the professorship. Cause I mean, that is the way that I thought. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I'm not one of those people. And you can tell I'm not one of those people because I am public. <laughs> well, it's interesting. So you said, if you read you, you can tell you're not quite on the inside. And yeah. on the one hand, I totally know what you mean. And then on the other hand, part of me wants to ask, well, what would it truly mean to be on the inside well, I mean, you know, if you're not on the inside? And, I, and I'm having to think myself of where I situate where I would locate myself on the inside or outside. I guess what I feel like at this point is to the extent that I'm not on the inside, it's in kind of fundamentally trivial ways. I'm not saying this is true of you. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking about like, what would it mean? I'm not a staff writer for the New Yorker or I'm not on contract with the New York Review of Books. But I know who those people are. I'm friends with some of those people. I yeah. speak to them as equals. Is that 
different for you? Is because and I'm interested in this because I think like some of what I find so fascinating about your writing is that you are anatomizing this stuff so precisely, and you're very alive to the ways in which some of what constitutes insiderness is not quantifiable in terms of sales. It's not quantifiable in terms of money. It has something to do with manners or self-presentation or a sort of almost kind of genetic understanding of how certain scenes work. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to okay. you, you know, like that editor on Twitter, who's like probably like a white liberal lady. And they're like, I just really want to read a brash queer person of color novel. I tell yes. my agent not to pitch that editor. <laughs> like, I don't pitch that editor. I don't pitch agents like that. Yeah. I don't pitch anyone on that spectrum. Not because I'm like those things that they want, but there's just something about the way I present myself, the way I talk. They immediately, like within 30 seconds, can read me as not their type of person. I... Genuinely, like, I have no idea what it, what it is. It's just something in the words I use. Like, I don't put my pronouns anywhere in my bio or anything like that. It's just, like, very, very small things that, that I don't do. But then that I do, that's kind of good because when I do get in with people like that, then they don't like my work and, like, I have so much conflict later on. Yeah, I had so, this quote from one of your pieces, but I've realized I simply don't send off the right signals. I forget which one that was in. I know exactly what you mean. And it's interesting. You also had this very funny passage. I, I forget which one it was in where you were talking about. And I, I think you were talking about conversations with a friend of yours. But like, basically, I have to send my stuff to like the old white guys. Like, yeah, I, have to I like my, those old white guys. Send my stuff to the old white guys. Well, it's interesting. So there's a way in which that editor on Twitter, whether it's a white woman or, or an editor of color or something like that, like they're sending off a certain a certain array of signals that you don't align with and, and vice versa, right? They know you could try, you could probably pull it off if you had to, but it would require such a kind of doing such violence to your whole gestalt that you wouldn't do it, right? So there's a way in which that person is inside, but then there's another way in which I look at that person and I'm like, yeah, but they're kind of basic, right? Like that's a certain level of insiderdom, but then there's like another level above that that's like more elite or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you can't plausibly say you are outsider vis-a-vis -vis that person when you have a book coming out from Princeton University Press. And, and not to blow smoke up your ass, uh, but I mean, to blow smoke up your ass, but earnestly, like you you have this book that you, I think you self-published, the what is it, The Cynical Guide to Publishing or something like that. And yeah. you've written in a few ways that like, look, here's how you game it. And I guess there were times when I wanted to call bullshit a little bit this is going to end up with me blowing smoke up your ass. It's just a roundabout way of doing that, right? Where it's like, you kind of say you're doing this stuff because you've learned the game and you're playing the game. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. But at the same time, you've adopted a very roundabout way to success if all you care about is success. Like, no, I don't care. You are, care you are leaning, constantly leaning into the things that you're fascinated by. And ultimately, that's something you can't fake. Right. So you can give your advice about how to be of that essay about like how to make it as a para-intellectual. And you can give yeah. all that advice about here's how you lock into the cultural political issues of the day in a way that'll be interesting to editors and it's good advice. But at the end of the day, if you don't have anything to say and you don't actually care yeah. about what you're saying, like you might place a few pieces, but you're not going to make a career as a writer. And the reason you have a career as a writer is, you know, maybe A, because you have some financial security that allows you to write this stuff, but it's also because you have something to say and because you have a sort of compulsion to say the things that you mean, even if that is not the shortest distance between two points of literary success. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I once joked that I could be like a trans, you know, uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams, like a <laughs> TCW, like right. I could go out there. A, and a, a TTCW, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I could go out there and be like, here's why giving your pronouns is stupid. Yeah. Um, you right. know, like, but you know, I don't really have a strong opinion on that. It's just not something I care to do. But you know, the thing that the reason TCW can do it is because like, that is personal for him. Like, you know, all of that stuff is like very personal for him. And I do think like the most important thing is to do good work. Um, I just tell me what is your what's your middle name, by the way, I just want to know what your three letter acronym would be. Oh, uh, Desai, so NDK. NDK, that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. I think you should go by uh, that. Yeah. That would be great.
but yeah, I just have seen a lot of people who have put everything into the work and, you know, if the book doesn't sell, then it's, I, I think if there are certain small things you can do to make the book more saleable, yes. then, then you should. And I think if you have my demographics or like Brandon Taylor's demographics, then you you really appeal to that diversity audience. Well, and I like the ways you kind of demystify publishing. It's not just publishing that you're demystifying. You're also sort of interested in demystifying both the life of the writer. You talk about money a lot, but also kind of the subtle signals that writers send consciously or unconsciously to indicate that they're, you know, inside or 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 outside in the right way. I mean, you're trans. We haven't talked much about that, but it's an interesting sort of, you know, the dynamic you're talking about, which is on the one hand, you don't send off the right signals to be the trans writer of color that a certain type of stereotypically young woke editor might want. But you're also saying, okay, but that but the existence of that person, the existence of all these, you know, hashtag diverse voices and all of that creates a pressure to look at you that the Gen X, the white Gen X editor feels such that, I guess what, such that he's just kind of giving you the time of the time of day, right? It's not that he's, it's not that he's taking you because you're those things. It's that 10 or 20 years ago, you might just not have made it past the slush pile or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like a lot of the internal politics of publishing houses is like, you need to build a constituency to buy anything. And you can always get your deals shot down by other people. I gather there's been a lot of agitation from below uh, too. So even like relatively junior staffers are raising objections and shooting down deals. Yeah. So you look at this book proposal and you're like, if I want to, I can acquire this book. Yeah. And so then you have an added incentive to want to. I want to read this thing that you wrote because I think it's funny, um, but it also kind of points us to this book you write out on the great books, which I'm interested in hearing more about. So this is in your myth of the classically educated elite, which is, there's, it's just a funny essay in the sense it's like you keep missing the memo that you don't actually have to read all of these books to be a kind of elite, a kind of successful writer. So you say, I went to Stanford and quickly discovered I had much more in the way of education than almost all of my classmates who seemed more or less unmoored from the Western tradition and certainly hadn't read any more of the great books than I had. I commenced a life of active alcoholism and didn't attend class for four years. For me, college involved absolutely no learning, so I cannot speak to what is taught there, which I just thought was was very funny. You know, I, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't funny at the time, or I'm sure like it retrospectively as a recovering alcoholic, not funny, but just the idea that you were drinking so much in college that you just like missed the fact that all of your super striving Stanford classmates were not reading Homer and Aeschylus and Dante and Montaigne and all of these things or something like that. But, you know, so so then you in this classically sort of autodidact way, which, again, is weird in light of the fact that your mom is a college professor, but you got the sort of book of the month club list, the books I need to read to be educated and then just read them all. And then at some point, I don't know, when is it you actually figured out that you were the only person who had read them all? Is that grad When I went to my MFA program. Right. At the MFA program, you know, people, it's not like people didn't care about books, but, you know, the oldest book they cared about was, the oldest author they cared about was Raymond Carver. Raymond Dennis Carver. Johnson. Raymond Carver. Yeah, Dennis Johnson. Yeah. And, and it was kind of funny because they would talk trash on, like, Henry James. Uh, and I'd be like, what? Well, they had just read, like, presumably, right? Or like had been exposed to, you know, had had a class. Yeah. Well, and I mean, when I was in my MFA program and I was not, I was nonfiction, not fiction, but I would have said that the kind of median level of reading was earlier than that. It was earlier than Raymond Carver. I don't think Hemingway was quite in such disrepute at that point. So these were people who'd read, you know, modernist novelists, post-war novelists or something like that. And they'd read some Shakespeare plays, but they probably hadn't read Cervantes. Probably a few of them read Moby Dick, but they hadn't read... You know, yeah, like, you know, Moby Dick, Middlemarch. So so where did the idea for the book come from? The, my editor at Princeton uh, Press, Matt Rohal, he contacted me after basically I'd written two essays for the LA Review of Books. And he was like, do you have any ideas for a book proposal? And somehow between this and that and the next thing, we hammered it out. I think the way it took... You come in with any idea. You just said, oh, you know, I've been thinking maybe I'd write a book about the great books. Yeah, yeah. 
And um, initially it was about the canon, uh, but then they were like, what do you mean by the canon? And I was like, what do I mean by the canon? And I started to realize the canon is a very vague term because it's, it's so expansive. So I was like, why don't I narrow it down to a specific list of books and anchor it in what I actually did? Yeah. And I think I read a bunch of these Shia for classical learning, for the great books, like almost inevitably written from kind of a center right standpoint. Um, you talk about around, like Harold Bloom and Alan, all the Blooms and Alan Bloom. Alan Bloom, uh, Barzun has a good one. The Culture yeah. We Deserve. There, there are a few others. And they're very rooted in the college experience. You know, basically we should have a kind of Columbia Common Core great books sort of deal. Yep. Basically like we should have exposed college kids more to that. And that seems fine. I, I, I just, I don't really have strong opinions on what we should teach kids in college. It was more just about on a personal level, what is there to get out of out of reading these books? And how can I square that with kind of my political commitments? Well, what's what's the thesis in brief? I think basically what I see in these books and what, what I've gotten out of them is a moral complexity and a moral nuance. And I think their alienness is a strong part of that. You know, that we talk a lot about diversity in terms of uh, race and gender, but you know, the greatest diversity is just across time. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the age of the books is is directly related to their greatness. I mean, both because they've undergone a lot of testing yeah. um, from various critical opinions, they've served various uses over time, they've had different meanings attached to them, uh, and just because they represent, you know, fundamentally very alien viewpoints. Yeah. Um, and I think like, what are the, uh, what are the good alternatives? What other course of books can you sit down and start reading by yourself and like gain a similar education? Um, yeah. And I, I don't really see that alternative. And I think it would be hard to believably craft, you know, a course of self-education that like didn't include at least a number of these authors. It's interesting. I, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying, but there's an argument for efficiency in a sense. It's <laughs> if you had to read 10 books or 20 books or something like that, yeah, in order exactly. to try and get self-educated in order to educate yourself, these are the ones, and I'm sure in part because of their sort of intrinsic quality, but also because of their location in the culture and the way in which they created the foundation on which so much else, from which so much else descends. Like I, I tend to think of whatever advice I give is always geared towards, you know, the exceptional person, like anyone who wants to exercise power of some mm -hmm. sort, you know, like what we do as writers and podcasters to a certain extent is exercise yep. power. And I think that it, these books can come in handy. They're both a source of power. Um, as we've you know, seen as, as part of researching my book, I've started to see kind of how the great books have had a bit of a resurgence um, amongst yeah. like the alt-right uh, and reactionary sphere. And I think because they're, they're just this source of power um, that being something people respect, but then also just because they give you the, the wisdom on how to exercise power. That's interesting. Yeah. So you brought up sort of the alt-right and you had this piece, I forget from, I don't know if it was LA Review Books or Tablet, but it was about the sort of the culture of the great books. It's, it's a little bit of a weird headline because what is it? It's like the culture of the great books is transphobic. It's something like that, right? Yeah. I mean, Which I it's think like led me to believe that what you were going to argue is that the great books themselves were transphobic. But that's not precisely yeah. what you're saying. You're saying the cult, the contemporary culture of people who are basically talking on about the great books all the time is a bunch of people yeah. who are kind of transphobic. Or yeah, like a lot. Like I've, I follow a few newsletters of people who are very into high culture and like it's not that often or I wouldn't follow them. But they're periodically, you know, the same people who, you know, hate Dante also claim that, you know, a man can be a woman. Right. I'm trying to think of who that, you know, the only... The only name that comes to mind is Chris Rufo, and he's such a, I'm, I'm not sure what the right pejorative for him is. It all seems so instrumental for him. You know, he talks about the great books or something like that, but I, it's, it doesn't seem clear that he's read any of them. It's a kind of weapon in his arsenal. But I assume you're talking about people who, who at least have read some of these books. Well, I mean, yeah, but like, I don't want to let one like me names. You've had Blake Smith on your podcast a few times. Yeah. And a lot of his essays are like, this is why XYZ queer theorists would agree that transgender identities are culturally constructed, you know? Uh, oh, no, um, you don't like Blake. See, it's, just, it's, just, it's, so hard. it's so hard for me when my... Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like his work, actually. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like, I think, I don't know, a lot of compact writers 
yep. seem to have really good taste. And like, it's just one of the extremely transphobic publications. <laughs> I mean, tablet too. Like, I don't think I would, I would publish in tablet anymore. Yeah. It's like, interesting. I'm not too locked. I'm not too locked into tablet these days. My, my older brother used to have a podcast with them. And, and so I would read them and they publish some of Blake's stuff. They publish some, at least one of your pieces. I don't know how much you've written yeah. for them. Yeah. Cause I, I, I was like so mad at the LA review of books that I'm like, I'm going to go someplace where I know they'll take this piece. Uh, it's such a fucking minefield sometimes. You had a funny line talking about that you published in the LA Review of Books because they, they had like, hold on, I wrote this down. In particular, I sensed that the Los Angeles Review of Books had er, lax standards. You know, and I, yeah. I, I wrote something for Quillette once. There are these wonderful publications out there where it's like it's a sort of quantity rather than quality model. They don't have yeah. the editorial staff to really edit people. And it's just like, if they want it, they'll just take it. Right. And it's yeah. like as a writer, well, Tablet isn't like that tablet. I knew they would take it because of the culture war aspect. Right. Um, that particular piece. But yeah, the L.A. Review of Books does not have, you know, it doesn't have the highest standards. It's great. It's incubated a lot of writers that way. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, I, I published some one or two things for Colette. And then somebody said to me once and I never thought about it in this light that they were just a kind of crypto alt right publication. And I was like, oh, fuck, I don't know if I want to put like, I don't want to know if I want to publish in a crypto alt right publication and, and all of these little micro calculations that we're making about where we want to be seen and who we want to be affiliated with and who will sort of preemptively not take us seriously because we're affiliated with a particular Thing. So you're saying, so now, so what, 2022, you published with Tablet, but 2023 Tablet, you know, you won't anymore? Or yeah, I think like, I know what happened is I started following on Twitter, my Tablet editor. Uh -huh. uh, and I was just like, I don't, I don't want to work with you again. <laughs> I mean, you talked about all of this in light of your political commitments. So what are your political commitments? Why is it that the Gen X editor feels an affinity for you? I mean, I'm technically, I'm on the young end of Gen X, but I'm like a Gen X white guy who, at least in the very small context of my podcast, gets to decide who to have on and who I feel an affinity for. So what is the affinity? I mean, I think the affinity is you're interested in saying clearly things that people often obscure about class and race and gender and sexuality. So that is something that I feel an affinity for. My whole podcast is about talking about the contemporary intellectual scene. And I think trying to be candid and transparent about things that are kind of often mystified or obscured in the way people are talking about it. So that is, that's an affinity I, sh I share. It feels like a liberal temperament in some way. Like it feels like the only, I guess another thing I would say is like the only intellectual culture which would have room for somebody who's willing to do that is one in which in which you can't get sort of maybe shouted down is the wrong word, but you can't get sort of politically suppressed by people who say, well, as of this, you know, yeah. I'm offended. I, oh, yeah. And, and so on the one hand, you can say, look, I can recognize that this sort of woke pressure creates space that I then benefit from. On the other hand, if the culture was uniformly woke in that sense, my guess is that which wouldn't be room for you, right? Yeah, I'm quite anti-woke um, and have always been on, on on that side in terms of like I don't particularly see a reason to deplatform Dave Chappelle and right. I had a friend who argued with me that oh but you know the people who are trying to deplatform Dave Chappelle are also exercising their free speech and the employees who who don't want to work on his show are exercising their free speech blah 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 I'm like you know what first and foremost I'm an artist um, and I just believe that we should err on the side of things existing rather than on the side of things not existing. So the things that I know very well are like art and literature, and I'm, I'm really not interested in compromising on those in terms of how do I make a better world with racial equality for everyone? I just don't know. You yeah. know, like we, we seem to have some pretty intractable racial disparities. I don't really know how to, how to solve them. It's not really my job to solve that. I'm not interested in turning my little domain art into like just some sort of in, in, in cheapening it or, or making it worse. I don't, I don't think that does anything to solve any any racial disparities. Well, and, and when you get to that sort of final sort of primary commitment to sort of art and space for art, do you feel the need or desire to justify that on political grounds? Or do you just end up with like, this is something I care about that's important to me. And that's enough to justify it. I mean, amongst artists, I've noticed there's kind of a megalomania. Artists will be in despair, 
like, oh, nobody is reading books anymore. You know, like what impact can I have? Like that Viet Nguyen New York Times editorial that I posted where he was, you know, talking about basically ideological litmus test for art. And thank God and, to him for writing that, by the way, just to be the sort of ultimate example of of that that yeah. we can all refer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was great. Absurdity. I mean, it's great that he actually said it. Right. But I mean, basically a lot of what I call wokeness just seems to be artists and intellectuals despair about the meaning of what they're doing. Yeah. I I just think I don't think I'm gonna like change the world. Nothing I do is going to radically transform the world. If I thought that by producing a certain kind of art or that stopping people from producing a certain kind of art, if it was allow Dave Chappelle to be on the air or freedom for all trans people, that would be like a very, you know, difficult choice. Right. But you could see really the case. You, you could see the case for censoring Dave Chappelle if we knew that the result was greater freedom for, for trans people. Yeah, like it doesn't really seem to be the case. Yeah, it's interesting. You had this post about Dave Chappelle and J.K. Rowling. You said a few things. You said there's no there's no real evidence that the world of Harry Potter is transphobic. There's plenty of evidence that J.K. Rowling is. And then I think more interestingly, you know, you talked about Chappelle's journey into the trans issue over, I don't know, was it two or three of his stand up specials. It was, it was a long thing. He's like really worked hard. I'm very impressed. He's worked really hard at telling these jokes. He did not choose an easy path. Yeah, it's interesting. My my objection to that was I just thought he got less funny for a while. He I did. Mean, I agree all these with you. about him just bombing. It, it's a weird kind of admiration you have for him. You're like, this isn't as funny as the stuff he did before, but here's a real fucking artist, right? He's got this bee in his bonnet, and he's just going to go live with it for seven years or something like that at the cost both of his sort of funniness quotients and then also the cost of all this sort of political criticism he has to take which you know yeah he's still got a gazillion dollars but nobody enjoys that um yeah i'm not sure if i saw the last one like finnegan's wake right objectively like not a good use of you know james joyce's last 15 years of life you have to respect you know all the effort it takes and that there's clearly some kind of purpose behind it so the other two books you have coming out, um, what is the, the, it's a funny word to use for it. The adult fiction, I guess you want to only use yes, novel for adults. The novel yeah, for I, adults. It's called no, the, it's, the default it's, world. Is that right? So what's the basic gist of that? The default world is about a trans woman in her mid twenties who moves back to San Francisco and basically falls in with these tech burner rich you know, hedonistic tech burners, and she sort of tries to worm her way into their scene. Ostensibly, she wants to trick one of them into marrying her so she can get their good trans benefits. But really, she just wants to be part of their life. Uh-huh. And I mean, she has initially, I guess, kind of a dismissive attitude, but also it's just it's just very attracted. Like, what? why would you not want to just do whatever you want all the time? So a few things I had to, I remember now in the sort of capsule description, I had to look up the term burner. So is that a kind of loosely that's like people who go to Burning Man and that? Yeah, I mean, I fictionalize fictionalize it Yeah, because I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to set a scene at Burning Man. Like I I don't want to drive all the way to the desert in my book. And so what's the type? Tell me what the, I I, I think I know what the type is of, of the, of the people that she's trying to kind of ingratiate herself with. I mean, half my graduating class, um, I graduated from Stanford, Stanford in 2008, moved yeah. to San Francisco um, to the point where when I would walk around the mission, almost every time I'd see somebody I went to school with, they got high paying tech jobs. So many of them made millions of dollars, but they continued to live in <laughs> like a, a small sort of rent controlled apartments, group homes, you know, in old sort of subdivided Victorians in the mission and they would, you know, spend a lot of their time and energy throwing very fancy uh, raves, but in kind of a pseudo underground way. I remember once a friend of mine was describing how they had broken into the San Francisco Botanical Garden to throw a rave. Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't know if you guys know this. It's not a good look if you're all earning six figure incomes. Like you could rent the Botanical Garden and throw a rave. <laughs> <nearly."> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's like a, a sort of, oh, like, you know, we're changing the culture and the burners call the regular world and the default world where people just live a very, live a very automatic thoughtless Uh life. 
And so how does, so I'm imagining the tone. I mean, the way you described it, it sounds comic, not necessarily like farce, but it's it, yeah. it's kind of comic novel. You're, you're sort of looking at the kind of mores and manners of this very unique, yeah. uh, I guess it sounds like profoundly immature culture in a way. So is that where you, do you live? Do you live out there now? Do you live out in yeah, the, I, live so, in I mean, I think it's kind of about, kids. you have kids, right? So I have you, a child. Yeah. You have a child. She's what? in her third day of preschool today. Wow. Okay. So wait, how old? She's three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. So are you, so you're, are you still not living in this world? Cause it doesn't sound like you ever lived in this world, but are you still living in some proximity to it? Or was that more a sort of, when you were in your twenties or something like that. Oh, I, I, I'm sure I have uh, a number of friends who are trapped out on the playa right now. Cause you know, there was a rainstorm. Right. So they're all trapped Very in topical. the mud. Uh, it was a bit comical. I mean, it's, it's physically a very unpleasant environment, Burning Man. Yeah. So like with high winds and terrible heat. So there, you know, it's just part of the, the experience. I mean, I guess what it's about is when I was in my twenties, all of these people were like, we're going to have a found family. We're all going to live together. We're going to be polyamorous, remake relationships, and we're going to break through like the sort of bourgeois mold. And even at the time, I was like, I, I just feel like I do want a house and a wife, you yeah. know, maybe not necessarily a child. You know, I'm, I'm Indian. And so I, I've experienced like clo very close-knit community. And I think part of the book is about contrasting what a really close-knit community looks like and what a scene looks like. Because a close-lit community, you have to hang out with lots of people you don't like. And right. they be in on your life and your choices. Right. And that's the opposite of what Burning Man's about. I think it's really fun to do. Yeah. But I think people are searching for something in, in, in Burning Man that they can never really find. So it's a fantasy of community, but it's like community without friction or something like that. Yeah. Right? It's just like skimming off the moments of communion and connectedness that one feels that kind of arise organically from an actual close-knit community. But just yeah. getting that without all the bullshit, all the baggage that you have to deal with yeah. with family and real friends. Yeah. And so one question I have, that I, this occurred to me. So this may be my fantasy of that culture of like Silicon Valley burner culture, but you're closer to it. So you can tell me if it's a reality or a fantasy. I think that 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 it's that it's immune to and sort of blind to a lot of the subtle class cues of the Northeast corridor that I have benefited from my entire life. So that it's one of the sort of consolations of occupying the kind of lower elite status that I have as a writer who's published books, who's published in fancy places, is that the people with real money recognize the distinction, right? So if I'm at a party and I'm talking to some finance bro who may, who's made a shit ton of money, right? May, we'll make more money this year than I've made in my entire life. But I managed to sort of slide in that I've published a book with a major publisher. It's like all of a sudden there's a little twinge of insecurity that I can, it's visible on his face, right? So I can, so, so I benefit from that. And I have this notion that if I went out to Northern California and hung out with, you know, these sort of tech bro, hoodie wearing, Burning Man, going types, they just wouldn't give a shit. They'd be like, oh yeah, my buddy self-published a book that sold, you know, 50,000 copies or something. Like I would get zero credit whatsoever. Like, Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's not zero credit. And I mean, most yeah. people in San Francisco are not burners. Like, right. So most people are very similar to the kinds of people you encounter in, in any other urban center. Yuppies. So but I yeah. guess I wonder, knowing your lens on these things, what are the sort of class, the, the class... Um, subtleties that you're demystifying in the book or class or race or gen like what's the like, it's hard for me to imagine you writing something without spending a fair amount of time sort of like laying bare these things that people just kind of mystify organically in order to just get along right because we can't we can't really live I mean you and I can as kind of intellectuals but the world can't live with the harsh light of the sun laying bare that much of the kind of substructure of what's motivating what they do, but I'm imagining your fiction doing that. Is that accurate? Yeah. First of all, Burning Man, the one of the weirder things is like it's 60% men, 40% uh -huh. uh, women, but the women are very scantily dressed. It's kind of a sexually free environment. And uh, like because of that, men take a lot of liberties of Burning Man. And so there's like kind of that fantasy of free and easy sex. And my character, who's, you know, trans and wants to be part of that, but knows that there's some distance. 
is like, you know, yeah, sex is never free and easy. There's always yeah. this sexual marketplace. At one point, there's a sexual training. It's like, if you feel uncomfortable ever, just stop the action. And my character's like, yeah, sure. And they're, no, no, really, if you ever feel at all comfortable. And the character's like, well, you know, I mean, I'll take my cues from other people around me. Because you know, if you've ever been to like a sex thing, there are always people having sex they don't really want to have. I don't know if that's taboo to say. They're not like no, being raped or anything. Right. But any situation with sex is always going to be a lot of ambiguity. Uh, and then in terms of Burning Man itself, papers over a lot of economic differences because there's no money exchanged on the playa. But the people who go have just vastly different amounts of wealth. And even in a Burning Man camp, they'll be vastly different levels so my character has these real financial needs that the the camp with its ethos is, is not really equipped to handle yeah that's interesting and so all this stuff plays out in the novel yeah i mean does the racial stuff play out in the novel as well you know i uh, it does yeah it does a little bit but mostly just because like my, my character finds it kind of amusing because she's escaping from a very close-knit indian community in sacramento so at this at this moment, what what if any community, intellectual, cultural, ethnic community, do you feel a part of or or an affiliation toward, if any? I feel a lot of affinity with Substack. Like I really like the Substack anti woke heterodox thinker community. Like I try to lean towards the parts of it that are not transphobes. But yeah, I really like it. Yeah. So it's interesting. So who are your sort of touchstones on Substack? Um, let's see, in terms of people, like individuals, like write in their own yeah. voice. Yeah. I really like John Pistelli. I think that he writes good stuff. Uh, I like Blake Smith a lot. I mean, I like Freddie DeBoer. Yeah. And then there's just like, you know, like small people who comment on my Substack. I was blogging on my WordPress site for ages and basically nobody would ever comment or anything. Like now I write something and I get comments. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if you go through the same process that I have or sort of have the same thoughts vis-a-vis -vis the kind of woke, anti-woke thing, which is, it's not that I don't come down on a side, but I am, I am wary of getting sucked into the maw of that binary because it seems like it ruins a lot of writers. I mean, there's this sort of purely sort of self-protective aspect of it, which is if I were to choose to spend all my time, you know, critiquing wokeness, that might have consequences for me sort of professionally or personally or something like that. So it's just the pure self-protectiveness, but then also it's just like who has actually benefited from kind of descending into that battle. I mean, I'm just protective of my talent, I guess. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it does seem to like drive a lot of views. I mean, it does. It, 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 that'll get you a lot more attention. I mean, the one thing I don't like about Substack is the amount of time people spend complaining about that phenomenon because paradoxically, wokeness is not an active presence on Substack itself. So it's like, who are you complaining about? There's nobody suppressing you here. You're kind of just boxing a ghost here, you yeah. know? So it just ends up seeming a little uncool, you know? Uh, then I go on Twitter and I'm like, oh yeah, people are still having kind of debates about whether there should be sex in, in fiction or whatever. Yeah, I like people that the people like read books, talk about books. They don't just talk about whatever the New York Times notable books are going to be. They talk about old books. Yeah. They'll have spicy opinions. Even though I strongly disagreed, I really liked like Blake Smith's article about how the New York Review of Books classics was um, uncool. <laughs> and I've never even known a person or encountered a person who could have an opinion about the New York Review of Books classics, much less a negative one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Blake's funny too, because he's, it's not right to say he's unfiltered. Obviously he's filtering it through like a sensibility, but he'll just say shit that I would never say. I mean, he'll say shit about editors at publications he's published for and presumably would want to publish for again. And I'm like, Jesus, do you think you'll ever come back around to the sort of science fiction or fantasy? Do you still read any of that stuff? I mean, come yeah, back I as a writer. I, I would really like to, because, you know, I have a lot of fr uh, friends in that world. Sometimes I think, oh, if I just stayed writing science fiction fantasy, I'd be way ahead career-wise, you know, in terms of where, where I am now. I think you're going to pull, you're going to pull like a Kelly Lanker or Jonathan Latham. Like you'll come back in, you know, yeah. like oh three or four if books come from back now. in, they love you. They right? love you when you come back in. It's like Michael Shimon winning the Nebula Award. It's like... <laughs> Oh, they're so happy. You come back in with all this lit cred, with all this like serious lit cred, 
And then the mainstream folks will be like, oh, she's, she's doing some really interesting stuff with these science fiction fantasy tropes. But then the science fiction fantasy people will love you because you're like shedding the glory of your lit cred onto their um, yeah. to their genre space. Yeah, I, I'm working on a science fiction book, I, but I've worked on so many science fiction. I must have been in 20 science fiction books over yeah. the last 15 years. So when you imagine writing the science fiction book, is it is it a sort of Kelly Link style? The, the vibe is kind of literary fiction, but it sort of uses these science fictional tropes or sort of concepts, or is it real genre science fiction? It's like space op- straight always- up space opera, but well executed. It's interesting because science fiction has gone through several permutations while I've been out for a while. It was almost impossible to sell a book that wasn't spaceships and lasers um, shooting at each other or, you know, some sort of combat. Then in the literary world, there were all these breakouts, especially Station Eleven. And that created more room in the science fiction world proper for non-combat books. I, I think for me, when I write science fiction, it tends to be more conceptual, you know, more... I'm a little bit more concerned with the the rules of how things actually work. Uh, like I was reading <laughs> Kant's uh, critique of practical reason, and like part of his idea well, is as like we all, as we all do in our freaking yeah, world. as we all do. And <laughs> yeah. part of his ideas were whatever moral laws exist, they must stem from the nature of consciousness itself and from our conscious lens. And I was like, oh, so aliens would have the same morality as we do which is a natural outlook. And so I'm right trying to work on a book where aliens come to earth and they have like discovered what they believe is universal morality that applies to everyone everywhere. And they're basically evaluating whether human beings are capable of following the universal morality. Uh-huh. So who who's writing the books that you would like to write in some sense? Gosh, I don't know. Um, maybe who is writing? I, like, I really like uh, Charles Strauss. Uh-huh. Um, I, and his more science fiction works, um, Karen Joy Fowler. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I mean, my thing is I'm like really drawn to the ideal, to the heroic. I was watching these old golden age of Hollywood movies. I watched High Noon, you know, where Gary Cooper is the marshal who goes from door to door in this town trying to get together a posse to kill the guy who's come back to kill him. And everybody says no, and he has to like go out alone. To face mm-hmm. them. So like that, that's really the kind of thing I'm drawn to. Uh, and I really, if I wrote science fiction, I really want to write about somebody who was a hero. But at the same time, it's just impossible for me to believe that Gary Cooper survives that uh-huh. encounter. <laughs> yeah. So what, so you have, do you know what's next after the three that are in motion? So you finished a draft of the great books. Are you, have you finished drafts of the other two? Or are they sort of mid? No, yeah, um, the YA novel, which we haven't talked about, but it is going to come out January 2nd. It's about a trans girl who is, I went to DC private schools. So it's about a trans girl who like basically goes to a, a fancy private school. Oh, we didn't even on. talk. I have, I can go, I can go DC private school. You mean like, like Sidwell and St. Albans yeah. and what's that national cathedral? Like, yeah. Which yeah, one did it's you go to? on NPS. Okay. Um, is that where I you went? went? To, I went to St. Anselm's Abbey School for Boys. Um, and I was like, no Catholic school would ever accept a trans girl. So he couldn't really use that. But yeah, it's basically a model on NCS. The problem is NCS at this point is probably so gender affirming that they don't make the best villains. Yeah, so it's right. somewhere in between an Episcopalian and a Catholic school. So that one comes out January 2nd. So that's done. That's that's at the printer. That's, that's ready to my, go. That's in the bag. Okay. So in the bag that they fired my editor for being a unionizer, um, for and it doesn't even affect my my what happens with my book. Uh, and then, and then the default world is is where in in the process. That is, I'm supposed to be doing line edits right now. Okay. I hate line edits. So a, a a moment when you're done with when you're just done with all three of those books is actually in the not too distant future. Do you know yeah. what's next? Do you already have something in the wings? Yeah, I'm I'm working on this science fiction book. I pitched another young adult book to my editor, but or my now fired editor. Um, and then her successor was like, no, we don't want this. So I, I kind of don't know if I'm going to be able to do another young adult book. It's just nice to work. But yeah, I'll maybe write the science fiction book. Uh, well, uh, Naomi, thank you for coming on. Thanks for all. I mean, yeah, this was so much fun an hour and uh, 37 minutes with me and good luck on all of the above when um, I guess, particularly when the great books one is coming out, you know, send that to me. We'll, we'll, we'll meet up again 
Sounds and talk good. about the great books. And I will have to come clean about all of the great books that I that I haven't read. Um, but but in light of your sort of generous, forgiving recognition that nobody other than you and like eight other guys. Hey, take care. Be well. This was an episode of Eminent Americans, the podcast. If you liked the podcast, subscribe to it uh, and subscribe to the newsletter of the same name, Eminent Americans, the newsletter. Recommend it to your friends. Rate it on the platform on which you listen to it. Beam good vibes about it out into the universe. Thank you to my producer, Nick Worthen, and thank you to you, my listeners. This is a labor of love for me, and I do genuinely appreciate your attention, particularly if you've gotten all the way here to the end of all things. Feel free to email me with questions, thoughts, observations, even diatribes at djops at gmail.com. That's D as in Daniel, J as in James, ops as in ops or Oppenheimer at gmail.com. Have a great day.